Hello, and welcome to Put Your Right Foot Forward podcast with Dr. Danny Aronovitz. Each week, we get to the heart of what it looks like to do the right thing in podiatry, medicine, and life. We're interviewing physicians in various fields who are doing the right thing for patients as they treat them and help them with health issues. We get real about medical issues, how to work with everyone who walks through our doors, and how to use our experiences to inform every area of our practice. Some of our episodes won't have a medical slant and are inspiring in their own right. These stories will reset your compass to be more more aligned with people who are doing the right thing. Get ready to get to the soul of your practice with Dr. Danny Aronovitz on another episode of Put Your Right Foot Forward podcast. Welcome to Put Your Right Foot Forward. I'm your host, Danny Aronovitz, and today we're speaking with Dr. Asma Abada. And um, this is going to be a great show, a great interview. This is a very inspiring individual. I've been uh, teaching residents for quite a long time. Asma had become my mentor at the program that she's currently attending uh, in Michigan. Uh, it's the Ascension Macomb Hospital Program uh, in Warren, Michigan. And I found her to be a very fascinating individual and thought that she would be a great share with my audiences. Um, Asma, thank you for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you for having me. You bet. I think that the reason I'm bringing Ozma uh, to our podcast this evening is because she has a lot to offer and she is an exemplary personality to putting your right foot forward. I, I want to let you know that the interview process is kind of grueling to become a resident in podiatric medicine, which Ozma is currently in her first year. And when we first look through our stack of uh, applicants, we look, we look through their CVs, of course, and, um, you know, hers were without exception, just a terrific transcript that she had put together. Unlike a lot of our other applicants, she was already published uh, five or six times over. You know, when she came to the interview, she she immediately caught our attention. She was great with the academic part of the interview, and she was great with the personality part of the interview. But it was really my introduction to Asma when I became her mentor at the hospital. And our mentorship program is meant for our residents to be able to vent when they need to vent to you or bring personal problems to you for your, your help or discussion or any problems that they're helping, having uh, during their program uh, professionally at the residency program. I want to let you know that Asma, before we dive into where she is currently, the thing that immediately drew me into her as her mentor was her upbringing. Asma, can you tell our audience a little bit about where you were born and, and, and maybe what year that was so they have some perspective on some time? Sure. Um, I was born in the Middle East, uh, specifically Iraq, and the year was 1989. And it was just actually at the end of the year, it was September 1989, right before the start of the Gulf War. Right. What, what are your earliest memories uh, of Iraq? Honestly, I don't have any. My earliest memory would be something in the U.S. maybe when I was seven years old. Everything before that time is kind of a blur. I don't remember much of anything at all, actually. Right. So uh, tell our listeners how your first early years were in Iraq and what was happening to you and your family at that time. So, um, like I said, it was uh, the start of the Gulf War. My father didn't have a career. He wasn't working in a job where the state considered it to be important enough 
So during that time, Saddam Hussein was the dictator of the land and he called out a draft and my father was drafted. So you couldn't really say no if your name was called out during the draft. So um, initially my father actually did join the ranks. Um, but then when it got to, I believe, late 1990, early 1991, my father decided to desert. So, um, at, so at that time, I, at that time, he had he had a change of heart. And what did, has he explained to you now that you're an adult? What was going through his mind, or or what his decision making process was? That yeah, um, he didn't want to join the ranks in the first place, um, but he was. So initially, uh, he was just basically not in the front line. He was um, in our city state. Um, so we didn't really see much of the war, what was going on. It wasn't near the borders. But during 1990, 1991, his, um, I guess, uh, group of soldiers were to be stationed in the front lines. And that's when it kind of became real for my dad. So he decided he had to leave before he actually was forced to go to the front lines. Yeah. So when that happens, what happens to like your family and to you? Are you are you outed right away? Are you arrested or what happens at that point? So um, uh, the common knowledge was that if you decided to desert, uh, the only course of action the military was going to take was to kill the deserter and immediate family. So my parents basically came together and decided what they were going to do. Um, in the middle of the night, we basically, my, my mom and dad just whisked me and my sister away. And the closest and safest place to go would be Saudi Arabia at that time. So and, and, Saudi Arabia, actually, I'm sorry. No, no. And so at that time, did you land in like a refugee camp or how does that work out? So we went in caravans, actually. Uh, like little uh, mini buses and caravans. And we were kind of, um, during the night, a group of people just went across the border to Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia established these camps, these refugee camps, in a place they called Rafshat, is what it was called. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so this place was, it, at its height, I think it was 35,000 um, soldiers and families from Iraq that actually escaped throughout the years. I mean, during the Gulf War, but at the height of that place, it was 35,000, I believe. People. Right. So as he explains what was happening in your early life to you, you know, as, as you eventually made your way, you know, to America, what did he say was happening in those refugee camps? How hard was it to, emerge from those and, and, and what's the process for you, you know, getting out of a refugee camp, you know, into a, a country where you want to eventually settle? Right. Um, so we remained in the refugee camp for roughly about four and a half to five years. Um, so I think we were there from 1991 to 1995. We actually ended up coming to America in 96. Right. But during that time, my, all I know is from my mom and dad, their stories, they were saying that the refugee camps had terrible conditions, 
My mom and dad both got really sick. There wasn't adequate medical care. Um, and I don't really have much um, by way of firsthand knowledge or experience because I believe as a kid, I must have had some PTSD. So my brain shut everything away and locked it away. So I don't have actual personal experience. All I have are stories my mom and dad wow. told me. That's that's really amazing and, because I think a lot of people, excuse me, I don't mean to jump on that, but a lot of people, I think, sure. start to have memories like when they're four and five, when they're like in nursery school years or kindergarten years. And because of everything that was happening to you, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe you shut that all off and just it, 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 um, it was some type of PS, PTSD situation that was right. happening to you. Um, you. So let me just jump back. You have how many siblings? I have 16 total. But at that okay, time in the camp, I'm sorry? Yeah, were any, of the, were any of you born in the refugee camp? Two of my siblings were born in the camp. Wow. And, and you said the medical care was kind of lacking there. I mean, it was, was it dangerous to have, you know, to become pregnant yeah. there? And, and, and were they, how helpful were they when your mother was going through that? So my mom would tell the story as, they had absolutely no medical care. Um, when my second sibling was born there, her and my mom both were really close to passing away because they couldn't come up with a way to safely deliver my sister. She was a breech child. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so they, they, didn't, they tried their best, but it was um, kind of touch and go for a while. Um, my mom didn't know if her baby was going to survive and she didn't know if she was going to survive because she has um, very, uh, a severe case of asthma. So you can mm. very well imagine going through <laughs> labor. Wow. Um, so, and what finally yeah. happens for you to emerge from the camp? Do you get sponsored by a family in another country? How do, how do they process you and say, okay, it's time for you to leave here and, and if you're able to go and how are you able to do that safely? So what ended up happening was uh, the UN um, found its way to the camp and they basically established like a system where each person was documented in the camp and received a UN refugee number. And um, when you're documented and your paperwork is processed, a country will sponsor you to basically go to that country and live. Some people went to Sweden, some people went to Switzerland, some to the UK. Our family um, was basically chosen to go to the U.S. And at that time, my parents knew nothing about the Western world. They really didn't know what other course to take. They knew the camps. They couldn't stay there forever. The camps right. what were was, not what was their first, yeah, What was their first choice of country that they wanted to land in? They didn't really have one. They knew nothing outside of the Middle East. Wow. And prior to this time, neither of them had even left their country. Right. Did they have any family members that were already in the U.S. or in other countries? No, not at all. They had nobody. So when you come, you, you, you land in America, and um, do they, they, they tell you what your sponsorship city is, and that's where you have to go, and then they process you when you get there? So initially, um, my parents told it like this. They said um, they, they had kind of like a little mini interview and they were asked, where would you like to go in the U.S.? And my parents had 
no idea what to choose. So what the people who were conducting the interview decided to do, they basically told them, hey, there's this place that has a huge population of Arabs. Uh, you might feel comfortable there. They might help you out, you know, having someone like you. Um, it's called Michigan. We'll take you there. And um, that's exactly what ended up happening. Wow. That's, a, that's, that's amazing. I mean, there's so many families, you know, in Michigan and where I'm from that, that it's not even an experience that we can even really wrap our arms around. I mean, that is a really just it's just all consuming to think you're going to move halfway across the world with your family, not understand the language, not understand exactly where you're going. And it's like, it's like almost being blind uh, culturally and, 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 you know, socially, it's very difficult. I can't imagine that your, your, your siblings. So when you got here, you're enrolled in school and who were the first, were you guys the first ones to bring English as a second language to your home? Yeah. Exactly. Um, growing up, my parents only spoke Arabic. They didn't know English. They took a few courses, but it just never really stuck. So in the home, it was all straight Arabic. Amongst the siblings and at school, we spoke English. Um, so there was always that dichotomy um, between the basically outside the home and inside the home. Uh, yeah, we were the first people to bring English to the home. Right. So when, when you land at your new place where you're living... Was the Arabic community that was already settled there, were they helpful? Were they inviting? Did they make it easy or was it difficult? Uh, it was so difficult, of course, but there were people that kind of, um, I would say, sponsored us. Uh, initially, the first few years we stayed, uh, we lived with a family and we kind of stayed in the basement area um, up until my family, um, basically, my dad applied for a job. My mom, kind of looked for homes or any which way that they can um, basically get up on their feet. So for first few years, we were living with the family. Um, so they were very helpful in that end. Uh-huh. That's great. Wow. It's, it's a remarkable story. Now, the part that really got me was that how like all you and your siblings started to put your right foot forward. And you guys are, were all on these amazing academic tracks that were so self-achieving and so so great can you elaborate what some of your other siblings are doing and what they have done and what they're currently studying yes um so like i said i have six siblings my eldest sister she went to um a private university and she studied architecture now she's doing interior home design um and then my sibling Right underneath me, she actually is doing um, neonatal nursing, and she is planning on going back into school to be a midwife. Wow. And then my other sibling is going into social work. She wants to specialize in uh, abused children. And so that's where we're at. The other two are just starting uh, college, so they're undetermined at the moment. <laughs> Right. And how do you feel now at the age you're at, you've, you've, you know, received your doctorate, you're, you're, you're a physician who's finishing her training and residency. And how do you feel, you know, being here in America? Because I know that, you know, I think from your, one of your CVs, I pulled up that you define yourself as a Muslim Arab American woman. And that's a lot of adjectives, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and, 
like, do you, is there room in, in, in the head of Ozma to be all those people for herself? I, I mean, how do you divide that up? You know, I, I, I'm walking this fence that I've had years to practice, honestly. Um, I always grew up, obviously, one, being a Muslim, two, through all the hard times um, that Muslims have faced in America. It was, uh, growing up, it was really hard to play all those parts, I guess, um, to be all those things at one time. But like I said, you think I've it got, did it get easier as you got older? Yeah, as I got older and as times got even harder um, after 2001, you know, things got really hard, but at the same time, I think it made me stronger. So I feel like, yes, I can be all those things at one time. And yes, sometimes, you know, one part of that aspect kind of encroaches onto another part, but there's always got to be like a give or take between all those parts. And I think I got it down pat, or at least for the most part. So are all, so all those things are still very important to you and, and, and you have to kind of do a balancing act. And so that, that leads me to you being comfortable in America, not only, you know, as a Muslim, as an Arab, as an American, and as a woman, those are a lot of things. But so educate me and my listeners to some of the customs that you brought to America. And are you able to practice all the customs that you want to practice as a Muslim Arab American woman? Sure. Um, so some customs would tie in strictly into the religion aspect of it. Um, as a Muslim, you are required to pray three times a day, three to five times a day, depending on uh, what sect of Islam you go into. And of course, um, being a physician, you don't have that much time allotted in your schedule to to go and um, conduct those prayers in a timely manner. So I have to not alter the way I pray or shift any one way. Um, the only thing I have to do is kind of like time management. Maybe I'll get less sleep here and, you know, in order right. to get everything done at one time. But um, so that, that's, that's just strictly the, uh, uh, the religious aspect of it. Um, other customs would be something like um, traditional customs that Middle Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern um, families would, would most likely do as opposed to the Western. Um, something like family gatherings are extremely important in the Middle Eastern culture. And if I'm busy, let's say studying, or I have a case, or I have to come home really late, sometimes family members don't understand why you are putting them in the back burner, as they would say. Um, but only but surely, they have realized how much effort and how much time has gone into getting where I am today. And they're fully accepting. <laughs> they're accepting the fact that sometimes, you know, I can't be there. 
Sometimes yeah, part a part of I you have has to have a part of you has to have become westernized. You know, you've had you have to go <laughs> along where, you, where you're living. I mean, you have to kind of do that and still, you know, feel you know proud enough and confident enough to to you know adhere to the customs and things you want to do. But I I think probably the older family members just don't understand that as well. But um, I'm sure they're coming around to to where they're living and how you have to to be and perform every day. I get that. Um, are your, any of your siblings married? One of them is. One of them's married. And, and so did she find somebody, you know, was, do, was it, tell, talk to us about are, are there arranged marriages or was she, was she able to date openly or how does that work for you? So of course, um, within our community, there are arranged marriages. Um, I'm not going to say that there aren't, there are, of course. My sister, she's a younger one. Uh, she got married and it was kind of like, um, so she was a maid of honor for her best friend. And while she was in the wedding, um, someone had seen her and asked about her. I was like, who is this person? What's her name? What's her family situation like? Who are her family members? Right. in touch with those people. So slowly but surely, it was like a week or two after the wedding, my father received a phone call and it was from the family. Um, uh, of, of the, the groom, I, I would say. Um, uh, so they just basically wanted to come over and have a meeting and see if the two prospective couple members uh, would, would, you know, like to carry uh, the relationship forward. Yeah, so young, pe- young people in America. Hang on, just to cut you off. Young people in America don't understand that. I mean, it's really old school. They want to kind of get to know your family and and yeah, know, to see yeah. if it's a, if it's a good fit. And it's it's not always up to the prospective bride and groom. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. There are situations in which that happens. Of course, um, what ended up happening with them was the whole both sides of the families met up, and then. Uh, my sister and her now husband, uh, they met up and they decided they wanted to see where that relationship would go. Um, so they basically dated with um, the both family members, both parents from both sides, perfectly um, happy and in line with the whole entire thing. And so they dated for a while and they, they decided that they wanted to get married and then they let the rest of us know. <laughs> That's and great. It went from there. That's a great story, you know, and it's funny. Um, you know, my great grandmother was from Russia and, you mm-hmm. know, she was kind of in an arranged marriage. She had a cousin that was working here in Detroit. And one day he was, you know, outside the factory where he was working and he was looking through some of the photos in his wallet and the person eating lunch next to him, like saw him flip through her photo. And he asked, he said, who is that girl? And he said, this is my cousin in Russia. And he says, you know, why don't you write to her? And if she'll come here, I'll pay for her passage, but I'd like to marry her. And at the time she was like 17. (laughs) And my, you know, would have been my great, great grandfather said to her, you know what, we're on this farm. We're really poor. Your cousin's a good guy. I'm sure he's trying to fix you up with somebody nice you know, what do you got to lose? Why don't you go do it? So at 17 years old, she like got on this boat and never, ever saw her family again, but was married to this man for like 56 years. 
you know, they had oh a wonderful, goodness. yeah, they had a wonderful life together. And that, that was kind of an arranged marriage. So not always a bad mm -hmm. thing. Not always a bad thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I want to do like a little rapid fire round with you here. And just kind of sure. what comes to mind first, I'm just going to ask a couple of questions. Our listeners might be interested. Uh, your favorite food? Um, it would be okra soup, believe it or not. We believe you. It sounds believable. <laughs> what about your last book that you read? Um, Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Did Very you read, good book, by the way. Did you read all eight books? No, not all eight. <laughs> okay. So I as an aside, I read all of those and couldn't put them down. And if you need copies of them, I still have them. Great books. I may pick up the third book again because I went halfway through the third book. Very, very good writer. Excellent. Tell me what your, where your favorite place in the world is. Um, a place that you visited. I haven't been to many. Uh, yeah. It, it, wait, does it have to be a place I've visited before? Um, yeah, probably our listeners want to know where you connect with. Um, so in 2008, I did kind of like a tour in the Middle East with the family. And I would have to say, um, home, Iran. Wow. Very so cool. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a city in Iran and it's absolutely beautiful. Wow. Transition between... Um, ancient architecture and modern life is absolutely beautiful. Very cool. Do you have like a famous quote or a famous motto that you kind of try to live by or something that inspires you? Um, so I have my own little motto and I say this to everybody. It could always be worse. <laughs> okay. Listen, so, that's, that's what our show is about. Very optimistic. Put your right foot forward. I think you exemplify that every day that I see you at the hospital. I think you're doing a great job that way. So uh, listeners, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Asma Abada today, and I think that her story of uh, being in Iraq, her family being thrust into a refugee camp, um, and her siblings and her parents all kind of land in America. They land in Michigan. And out of nowhere, they all start putting their right foot forward. They all start really applying themselves to school uh, and uh, coming up with like great career choices. And it's just amazing how, you know, they could have ended up anywhere and they, they, they just, they were resilient and they came to this country. They, they became educated, they became westernized and, and, they're all, you know, making their way and, and, and getting ahead in this country. And I think it's very inspirational. Um, Asma, we've enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for being one of those people who are always putting your right foot forward. Uh, people who you come in contact with are going to appreciate that in the future. And I think you are going to be very special as a physician. And um, you're going to take care of lots of people that are very appreciative of your care in the future. And... Um, Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. And that's it from this podcast, Put Your Right Foot Forward. Thanks for joining us today and look for us in a future episode. Thanks again. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for joining us on this episode of Put Your Right Foot Forward podcast. Remember, when you see the door of opportunity to do the right thing, walk through it. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your episodes. Thanks for listening and have an amazing day.